Well, it's hard to know if you should clap after that, man. It's such a, a, a song that gives voice to something beautiful that's broken, doesn't it? And for you, it might be marriage. For you, it might be a friendship. Maybe it's a relationship between you and a son or a daughter. Or even a, a partner. Maybe you start a venture out together. You made a commitment to do something together. And somewhere along the way, it went from a commitment to do something you'd enjoy, to something you didn't even like, to now there's animosity between the two of you. And we're going to talk today about what causes relationships to break and how do we repair them. To do that, we're in a series again called The Really Wed Game, when the honeymoon's over and the in-laws are too, and we're going to play a quick game of the Wheel of Marriage. Now to do that, I want to use this to explain why is it that over time, friendships, relationships, marriage begin to not fight fair, begin to deteriorate. Because almost every relationship that begins is filled with things like love and trust and hope and joy. These are the things, kindness, the things that flourish a relationship. But over time, there's times you get into a fight. And psychologists and scientists have found there's a place in the brain called the hippocampus. We'll call it this 1030 to 1 o'clock phase. It's the emotional part of the brain. And rather than using uh, rationality to discuss, to challenge you suddenly get into fight or flight mode. And even though there's lots of opportunity in your relationship with your son, your daughter, your boss, your colleague to have joy, love, trust, etc., you end up stuck between attack and avoid. Somebody brings up a complaint about your department, about you from your spouse, when your son or daughter says, hey, I don't really like what you're doing, and you attack. Oh, you know what you're talking about. I'm, I'm, I'm in charge around here. I've been doing this a lot longer. You attack. You don't even consider the possibility that they might have a point or you blame well yeah sure sure i was crabby sure sure i did that well if you hadn't said that said this i wouldn't have done that well if i hadn't been having such a stressful day then maybe that wouldn't have happened or we avoid we stonewall well i don't want to talk about it well you haven't wanted to talk about it for a year well i still want to talk about it and all of a sudden you don't get back you say i want joy and trust and hope but you're stuck your brain literally is stuck your hippocampus is kicking in and this is what's happening when your fight or flight kick in in fact there's a friend of mine who once said if you get hysterical meaning a, a disproportionate amount of emotion for the situation it means your hippocampus is probably in in operation when your hippocampus is in operation when things get hysterical they're usually historical. Your hippocampus is kicking in and bringing up. It's not just about this moment, this fight, this situation. You're bringing up every time you felt attacked in the past in other situations. You're blaming because you remember what happened before. And that is causing the issues. And you just want to avoid it because you don't want any more pain. And this does not set us up for the best friendships. does not set us up for the best marriages. And we end up with broken promises like that last song said. So with that, we are going to play a little game called the Wheel of Marriage. And to do that, I'm going to invite my friend Peter. Come on down. Join us for the Wheel of Marriage. Your goal here, so you got married here on this stage, what, three years ago? Yes, three years so ago. So three years ago. Yep. So you, you've been there three years. And lots of opportunity for joy in marriage. We're going to assume you're just married. The goal of the game is to get as many points as possible in the time limit without getting five buzzes. So either right. five buzzes, the game's over, or the time limit's up. So, if you hit one of the bad spots, you're going to hear this sound. All right. If you hit one of the good spots, you're going to hear this sound. All right. Give it a spin. All right. See how many points you can get. You just got married, we're going to imagine. You and your wife are just married. Things are going well. 
As long as you can stay out of your hippocampus, don't no get way. into the blame no game. Way. Oh, here no comes way. the blame game. It's looking bad. Looking Okay, go pass, go pass, go pass. All right. Good, good. First year of marriage. And you got some trust. Good. You build on trust. One point. All right, one point. All right. We're going we're gonna to fast forward. It's now been two or three years. You've been married three years now. Go ahead and give it a spin. Okay. Let's see how well you can do three years into marriage. Can you avoid that hippocampus? So again, the wheel is spinning. We're going to try, try and avoid this big chunk of hippocampus. Oh, you're doing well today. All right, looks pretty good for the home team. We got another positive. Lots of trust. Oh, my <laughs> trust. Of trust in our marriage. All right, good job. Now we're going to fast forward five years in your marriage. There's this tendency in relationships that the longer you're in it, the more you take each other for granted. So we're going to remove one of the joys, and we have some passivity. Ooh, this is that we haven't been on a date in a while because we're so busy texting the kids. And we're going to take one more off, and we got some more passivity here. So it's going to be harder five years into marriage to keep prioritizing. You've got two points, no buzzes. Give it a spin. I'm not too worried because we're all about trust. So Okay, yeah, yeah, we'll see if we can get a third time. If you get a third time, I think the game's rigged. We'll yeah. look for the magnet back there. All right, again, we got two points, no buzzes, two trusts, missing the hippocampus. we got some passivity coming up. Say goodbye to the trust. Oh, oh. We got more passivity. Oh, five years into marriage. Let that sound. That's right. We got one buzz, two points. All right. We're going to fast forward now seven years into your marriage. Again, if we don't naturally prioritize each other, what happens is a little bit of hope turns into passivity. We'll spend a little bit more. One of those wonderful trusts. You know, the trust is gone. Indifference is uh, replaced with that. One more love we're going to replace with apathy. And trust is going to be replaced with more apathy. All right. You got one buzz, two spins. Go ahead and give it another shot. All right. We're 10 years into marriage. You got a lot of things going for you. A lot of possibilities against you. Up oh, the hippocampus is looking bad. You yet again avoided. Oh, that's one. Oh, some indifference. That's two bumps. All right. You get two more spins. The game is over. All right. So right now it's two to two. You're hoping to beat it again. Half, half, half. Big money. Big money. Yeah, no whammies, no whammies, big bucks here. Here we go. I can't believe you've avoided that hippocampus. You, you guys are really doing well. Uh, uh, give me some come joy. on, joy, joy, joy. Uh, uh. <laughs> Three. Last spin. This is your chance to either tie it or lose the game. Fourth one, you're out. Here we go. Last spin. It's 40 years of marriage now. Things are doing well, but you really got to prioritize oh, each other. Trust and a bunch of bad stuff. You've totally avoided your <laughs> hippocampus, though. That's pretty amazing after all those years. All right. Every other got some joy and trust coming here. Can you Maybe make a it? Little hope. Hope. Just a little All hope. All right. Nice job. Three points. Can <laughs> we right. give him a hand? Three points and three buzzes. All right. Well, that is a great illustration of what naturally happens if you allow the current of your relationship to take you where it typically goes. And if you've been married two years, five years, ten years. If you had a friendship, a relationship in a family, you know that passivity and indifference begins to build up. You have to intentionally choose to reprioritize, to examine your own heart. And that's what we're going to look at today in the Really Wed Game. Shanti Feldhahn, a Harvard-trained researcher, did one of the most extensive studies of marriage. And she asked men and women the same question. Would you rather be loved and not respected or respected and not loved? Obviously, they're both good, right? We need both of them. But if you had to choose, what do you think the results said? What would you say? Would you rather be loved and not respected or respected and not loved? At a almost three to one, sometimes two to one margin, it came back that women, almost two thirds of them said they'd rather be loved 
than respected if they had to choose. Now, my wife would be opposite on this one, but two-thirds of women. Men came back the opposite. They said, two-thirds, I'd rather be respected than loved. And just that difference, the difference between how we communicate and receive love can set us up for a whole lot of pain, a whole lot of indifference on the wheel of relationships. If we don't learn as men how to communicate love even when we're disagreeing on something. And women, if we don't learn how to communicate our disagreements and complaints with respect, it's going to set us up for a whole lot of pain. And underneath that is a problem that we're going to see in David's life in the Bible today. Something that causes it to be very difficult to deal with this. What is that? That is the shift that happens in our heart. The shift early in your marriage when you stand before a pastor or a priest and you give your vows with a kind heart. And there's such humility toward one another. You say, who am I to marry you? Who am I that you said yes when I proposed? Who am I? I'm the luckiest man, the luckiest woman in the world. Then fast forward 20, 30 years and you shift from who am I to don't you know who I am? And suddenly proud pride comes in. You start saying, how dare you talk to me like that? How dare I have to put up with this? You know how long I put up with your snoring? How long I put up with your insensitivity? How long I put up with your inability to prioritize our time in the bedroom? Whatever it is. But a shift occurs from oh, who am I to don't you know who I am? And that creates the fertile soil for dangerous relationships. And yet there are four ways we can overcome that. Four ways that we can be a tender warrior and a tender spouse that will allow us to woo and pursue each other for the long haul. I want to look at those together. The first thing is I want to encourage us all to be tender warriors. Now, warriors are often, maybe you don't think of a warrior as tender. You think of them as somebody who goes in battle. But warriors always battle because they care about something. They care about country. They care about family. They're protecting something they love and care tenderly about. That's why they're going to battle. And a tender warrior knows how to wield the sword of humility and knows how to wield the sword of not taking the other person for granted. He knows or she knows that the tendency toward toward the pull of, of life is toward apathy and passivity and takes you for granted. So you continually renew the sword, sharpen the sword of your own humility. You continue to come back and say, what does it look like for me to make sure again Again, I'm not taking this person for granted, this friendship for granted, my child for granted, my parents for granted, my spouse for granted. But it is a sword that needs to be sharpened again and again so you can wield humility to keep the things in your relationship you want. When David first gets the opportunity, shepherd boy just defeated Goliath, to marry Miguel, Saul's daughter, he is overwhelmed with humility. He turns to Saul, the king, and says, I'm a shepherd. Who am I to marry into your family? Who am I? That my life or my father's family should be a son-in-law to the king. Who am I? I am the luckiest man in the world that you chose to marry me. I am the luckiest man in the world that I get this opportunity. Yet if you fast forward to the end of 1 Samuel and Chronicles... After 30 years of marriage, he's talking to his wife, and they have a big blow-up fight we're going to look at in a few minutes. In the middle of that fight, look what he says. David says to Miguel, it was before the Lord who chose me, God chose me, instead of your father. He appointed me ruler 
over all the people of Israel. Don't you know who I am? I'm the king. Don't you know who I am? What I put up with for you? I deserve a lot better than I'm getting. And this shift has moved from humility. Who am I? To how dare you talk to me like that? Don't you know who I am and what I've done? Don't you know how important I am at work? Don't you know what people call me? They call me king. And that shift, which happens in all of our hearts all the time, toward our business, toward our relationships, is death to relationships. Now, I've been married 24 years, going on 25 this May. And in the midst of that, there's been ups and there's been downs. There's been constant sharpening and renewing of vows. We have a wedding coming up in six days. My daughter's getting married. And we've been preparing for that. And we're excited about that. A lot of turmoil. I'm actually rushing after this service to the emergency room. Because my son Quinn has been rushed to the emergency room. Because his face is all blown up from infection. And and all happening in the midst of it. So there has been all kinds of challenges and, and difficulties. And even preparing for something as great as a wedding. Happening right in the middle of life. In the midst of all that chaos and my wife's back injuries and all the stress on us, we just really hurt each other about three weeks ago. She said some things that hurt me deeply. I said some things that hurt her deeply. So we took some time to sort of journal together and come back. And, and what's so challenging is I have to find a babysitter because of the special needs situation so I can have a conversation with my wife. So we have a babysitter watching the kids in the basement so the two of us can have a talk upstairs. And it was just such a restorative conversation. Where she apologized for some things and clarified some things. And I apologized for a lot of things and clarified some things. We got done and just had a beautiful moment of forgiveness and tenderness toward each other. I said, all right, it might be too soon for this because I'm, I said, but, you know, can I at least give you a kiss or a hug? She said, that's fine, give me a kiss or a hug. And it was just so restorative. And it's so restorative, it gets a little rated R after that, so I'm not going to go into that part of the story, but it was, uh, <laughs> It was a reminder that 24 years into marriage, you still have to wield the sword of humility. We felt like our, our son-in-law, whose future son-in-law is living with us, and my daughter um, had at least knew that we were hurting each other, and so did my son. So we decided it would be restorative that two weeks before their marriage, we would renew our vows. So we had this sort of family meeting, another babysitter, so we have a family meeting. Um, we got together and we said, hey, we think it would be helpful. You guys are about to give your vows Going into your marriage, we want to show you what it looks like to give your vows. You guys know how much stress we're under, how much pressure we're under, to renew your vows in the midst of stress. Because you guys have seen what we're under. And so Beth actually found in our original wedding book, our original vows. And so she pulled it out. And so Javen was sitting here, and, and Sierra was sitting there, and Brandon. I said, we want to renew our vows in front of you guys at the kitchen table to let you know this is what it looks like in marriage to every day make that decision. So I handed it to Javen. I said, now listen, don't mess up the pronouns because they're all together. He's like, what? I'm fine. So he starts reading. Do you, Chad? Uh, I, Chad. Uh, take Beth, take Beth, to be your lawfully wedded husband slash wife. The wife. That's why I said don't mess up the pronouns. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. So I, I'm going through that. He's messing up every single pronoun. He's messed every single husband, wife. And because Javen doesn't do cursive real well, we get to the cursive part and it's like sickness and health. He goes, do you promise uh, to vow to her in sickness and health? But he didn't see sickness and health. He goes, do you promise to love her uh, in uh, dickness and health? Um, I'm like, what? Pickles and health. No, it's not. What? Sickness oh, sickness and health. So we're to- so this, this could have been a tender moment. turns into a hilarious family moment. So I'm like, all right, Sierra, you do mom's vows. Well, my daughter has dyslexia, um, which I'd forgotten about. 
in that moment. So Bess, again, renewing her vows to me, and we get to, do you promise to love Chad? I promise to love Chad, to, to confront Chad. Confront Chad? I don't remember this. That's console. That's console. So it was a hilarious family moment. But we turned to both of our kids and said, we want you to know that this is what marriage is like. It's just that you keep choosing to love each other. You keep choosing to forgive each other. You keep choosing to repair with one another. So be a tender warrior. Don't let that selfish shift from from who I am move you away from, and who am I to be lucky enough to be with you? Because that's a natural pull. The second aspect that if you want to be a tender warrior that we need to look at, what does it look like as a tender warrior for you to, like David, not just avoid uh, pride, what does it look like for you to fight for your spouse more than you fight with your spouse? Every good relationship should be fighting if you marry somebody different from you and have a real relationship. But you should be fighting for your spouse more than with your spouse. It's pretty amazing. Early in David's life, you see this pretty powerful moment. And they're set up for failure. I mean for failure early on in a pretty destructive way. Last week I mentioned this, that King Saul has allowed David to marry Miguel because he saw she could be a snare to him. He was going to use her to control him. Well, this does not sound like a setup for a great marriage. And this is what this diabolical father-in-law is doing. He wants to snare and entrap and control this man who might get more popular than him. But even that wasn't enough to sabotage him. He says, tell you what, you're a, even though he promised whoever wins Goliath could marry his daughter, he says, I want to add in another thing. You know, you got to pay a dowry. Oh, you got to pay a dowry. It's kind of part of the culture. You don't have any money? I'll give you a dowry. Another one of the most bizarre passages in the Bible ever. He says, I want you to go bring me 100 foreskins, foreskins of a Philistine, and that will be your dowry. Now, quick background, unlike in American culture today where almost everybody gets circumcised, in those days, Jews got circumcised as a sign of the covenant. No one else did. Why would I want to do that? So Saul purposely tells him to go get a hundred foreskins to marry his daughter so that David would fall by the Philistines. He hopes, yeah, the Philistines are going to find out who did that. He did what? We're going to go kill him. So he has set up this dowry to make sure David dies. Well, sure enough, David goes out. Mighty warrior fights for his wife, fights in battle, takes on the enemy and brings back apparently a big old pile of foreskins. Ooh, thank you. Don't re-gift that one. Wow. But here he is, early in his relationship, fighting for, in that weird culture, in that time, fighting for his spouse. Fighting to do whatever it takes to get to her. I remember I was in Bible college. We were in Old Testament survey. And gigantic classroom, like 200 people in the classroom. And we were going over what's called the Abrahamic Covenant. That's where circumcision was first introduced by God to Abraham. And there is this sweet, sweet, innocent little girl who I don't know if she just didn't get out much, but she was in the front row. And we start talking about circumcision and foreskins and, and all that. And everybody's like, well, it's kind of weird, kind of weird. And she raises her hand. Oh, please, no, please, no. She does. <laughs> Dr. Martin. Yes, you have a question? Yeah, I don't get it. Now, what do you mean you don't get it? Why would God want a piece of skin from their forehead? Everybody around her is like, 
And Dr. Marty went and explained to her in detail in front of 200 people what circumcision and a foreskin was. And she slowly sank into her desk. So I would imagine what does that relate to us today, Chad? You're probably not going to be fighting for a lot of foreskins, I hope. But there are ways in which if you don't continue to fight for your spouse, fight for that friendship, fight for that relationship, you're going to end up with indifference and passivity and apathy. Dr. Gottman did one of the largest researches over multiple decades of couples ever done. And he said there are four things that will destroy any relationship. These are the things, no matter where you are or who you are, you say the two of us together have got to fight these four horsemen. The two of us together have to say, whatever is your fault or my fault, these are the real enemy. In your department, when there's division and gossip occurring, this is what you're really fighting against. The four horsemen of the apocalypse that you're fighting for your department, for your company, for your relationship. He says criticism, not complaints. Criticism is when you move from complaining about what something is doing to criticizing them personally. Name-calling. You have contempt for the personality. You have a contempt for who they are. Criticism goes from a thing to a person. Not just, hey, it really isn't helpful when you do X and Y, Z. Versus, you never talk. You always do this. You've never prioritized me. That level of criticism, the two of you commit to, the department commit to, let's complain but not criticize. Number two is contempt. That that criticism that you ruminate on and meditate on for so long becomes so bad, you just have contempt for that person in your department. Just thinking of them makes you sick. You are so irritated that's gone on for so long that they haven't done this or have been doing this that you allow contempt to grow in your heart. The Bible says it this way. Do not let the root of bitterness grow in your heart in marriage. Because once the root of bitterness or contempt grows, it is hard to, it's hard to keep that from kudzuing its way across everything. Defensiveness. When you get into that hippocampus and it's defensiveness and you just say, hey, I'm going to attack, blame, or avoid if you bring up anything, that is the death to a relationship. Because you can no longer hear feedback. You're always defensive. Attacking, blaming, excusing, avoiding. And lastly, it's stonewalling. Stonewalling is, I'm not going to talk about it. I said I'm not going to talk about it. Well, can we ever repair? No. That stonewalling is indifference. And the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. I don't care enough to try. And if you will commit to say, we are going to fight for each other. And this is the enemy. Whatever happens in our relationship, that's what we're really fighting over. That's what will destroy us. That's where you'll find success. And another example of some of the most bizarre passages in the Bible, because I'm trying to fit them all into this series, David has now been married 30 years. As we've been learning in this series, King Saul has pulled his wife from him, tried to kill him, yanked his best friend from him, been chasing him around the country, back and forth, back and forth, for years now. In order to pour salt onto the wound... Saul wants David to know just how bad he can be hurt. So he takes his daughter, who he'd married off to David, but David's been on the run for years, and marries Miguel off to a different man while he's gone. Who says the Bible's boring? David, now after years of trying to extend grace and rebuild relationships, David has now become king. 
And as he becomes king, after 30 years, he says, I'm still going to woo and pursue the wife of my youth. He makes a deal with the, with the, the general that's in charge after King Saul died. And he said, listen, I'm coming back to be king, but there's one thing I require of you before I come back to be king. I want my wife back. I'm still thinking of her all these years later. I'm still pursuing her all those years. I'm still wooing and pursuing the woman I love and the woman I'm committed to. You know what every marriage needs? Each one of us to commit to woo and pursue each other. Despite the pain, despite the rough edges, despite the the things we've learned about each other over time, will we continue 30 years later to say, who am I that I get to be with you? And I still want to prioritize you. I still want to be with you. Now, it's very dysfunctional. God works in the most dysfunctional situations. And this is one of the more dysfunctional ones. I'm not saying this is the right thing to do. It's messy. The only thing I think we can apply from this is he's continuing to pursue his wife 30 years later. However, she's been married off. So they come back and the general's like, all right, well, you want your wife back? You want your wife back. Miguel, your husband wants you back. All right, so they come back. Well, then the second husband, poor uh, Palthiel, is like, what happened? And they have this big royal parade. Hey, the king is back with his wife, Miguel. And like at the back of the parade is Palthiel. Goodness, what happened? Whew. Whoa. I mean, just pain and disaster. So obviously that's not an application for us today. But it's just a sign that God works in the midst of so much brokenness and so much betrayal and so much pain. I remember going to breakfast a couple of weeks ago with my uh, future son-in-law. And I said, listen, I'll tell you what I have committed to. There have been many times in my marriage and Beth and I have loved being married. We have so enjoyed each other's friendship. We are very different from one another, but we love marriage. I think that there are moments we want to kill each other. And that is just honest. And there are moments I write in my journal. There's times I've grabbed my pen and with my fist around my pen, I've written, based on that verse from Hebrews, I will not be bitter. Because I knew who the real enemy was. And I'm sure Beth has done the same. I said, what I'm expecting from you with my daughter is the same. To fight against contempt. To fight against... It's easy early in the marriage. Later on, we get to know just how broken we all are. That's when the real commitment occurs. So tender warriors, they wield humility. They fight for your spouse more than just with your spouse. And then two last things. What does it mean to be a tender spouse? And here we see both a mistake and we see a solution. A tender spouse knows how to... How to monitor their own heart and their own words it's easy to blame the other person's words and the other person's comments but we need to be responsible to monitor our own heart have i let contempt in am i becoming critical am i ruminating and meditating on every mistake or weakness of my spouse i need to monitor my heart and my words and when we don't a flood of pain comes out and this is exactly what happens In this powerful moment, David has just remarried Miguel. Things are just heading back to sort of normal. And David is like at the top of his career, top of success. Things are going so incredibly well. He has just won the day. He's built houses for himself in the city of David. He's moved the capital city back to Jerusalem. He is dealing with the leaders, leaders, the the men of the city, the, the leaders of the city, the women of the city. He's sort of brought everyone together for this powerful moment in history. 
And look, he's spoken with the leaders. He's, he's also refound the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember, Raiders Lost Ark. So sort of the box was a God box where God's presence was. He's bringing the God box into Jerusalem. Everything in his life is like, go, 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 yay, yay, yay. At work, he is feeling affirmed. He's feeling celebrated. And as he comes in with the God box, represents God's presence, he begins to dance. He is so overwhelmed and overjoyed, he whirls about, celebrating what God has done in his life. And as he whirls and swirls, it says, his wife sees him. And it says she despised him in her heart. Despite all the things going well in his life, go to the next verse. You know what he really wants? Affirmation from his wife. Encouragement from his wife. And you can have everything going well in your life. And you know this. Everything in your life can be going well. You get rewards for everything in your life. But if your spouse has contempt for you, it's hard to think about anything else. She didn't monitor her own heart. And she certainly isn't going to monitor her own words. And Miguel, in his happiest day of his career, she despised him in her heart, allowed contempt. How Look how foolish he looks dancing around. David, now what's his motivation? His motivation is not to humiliate her or to embarrass her. David had returned to bless his household. I've come home to just celebrate. Look at all the things God's done. I want to share that with you. He's got a giving heart. He can't wait to bless his household. And what he comes home to instead is despise and contempt. And then she doesn't monitor on her heart. Look what comes out of her mouth. Saw you dancing today around the ark. How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of all the young maiden servants around. Nice. You're like a base fellow shamelessly uncovers himself. You're like a drunkard. In Shanti Feldhahn's book, she notes that men's deep need for respect and the fact that we can be pretty confident. And the research shows, as I mentioned two weeks ago, that sometimes we're faking that confidence. And so women sometimes think because men are so confident and because we seem so self-assured that they need to be knocked down a few notches. And so I think I'm not sure what my real vows were, but what I really committed to is to knock him down a few notches. Keep him humble. I'm going to keep him humble. And that is a huge mistake. All the research shows that men would need the opposite. No matter what's happening at work, no matter how much affirmation they're getting in other places, they hunger and thirst for the respect and affirmation of their spouse. And monitoring your own, and vice versa, by the way, but in the case of this story, to monitor your own heart and say, I'm not going to meditate and ruminate on all my spouse's weaknesses, and then I wonder why I don't feel any affection toward him or her, because I've ruminated and meditated on all their weaknesses all day long, what drives me crazy all day long. And then not monitoring your heart, you wonder why your words flow out of your heart, as Jesus says. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I was talking with a couple about a year ago. Early on in the marriage, there was a lot of this going on. And the words coming out of, out of one particular person's mouth was just like daggers. That's even the word he used. They're like daggers coming out. I've got to hurt them. I've got to defend myself. I said, I want to warn you. Whatever the issue is, whether you're right or she's wrong or vice versa, you keep doing this and you're going to destroy something you say you care about. I'm worried for you. You're not monitoring your own heart. And what's coming out of your heart is a level of dagger and pain. And I'm not sure that it's sustainable over time to keep this thing working unless you can get to the bottom of this. Over the last year, there's been a lot of serious work that's been done in moving in a healthier direction. 
couple weeks ago when I got back from my own journal entering, I realized, you know what? I need to make sure I'm noticing. I, I've got a notice list I keep up in my mirror now. I want to notice every day three or four things my wife is doing right and vice versa. And during the day, I'm going to text it to her. Hey, I noticed. Sent her one last night. Because my son, like I said, is in the hospital. And so she had to spend the night at the hospital. And I'm taking over here at one today. And I'm like, hey, thanks so much. And I was kind of like, oh, I think he's probably fine. Because I rushed him to the doctor that morning. And he said he'll probably be fine. And she said, no, I really feel like we need to take him to the emergency room. It turns out she was right. Hey, you know what? You were right. Thanks so much for pushing us to make sure we rushed him to the hospital. Who knows what would happen if I hadn't got him there. Make a notice list. Begin to notice what your boss is doing right. What your son is doing right. First two years of college, my wife and I, every month we wrote a letter to both our son and our daughter in college. Telling them how proud we were of them. How much we believed in them. How much we appreciated them. We wanted to put those kind of words into them. We wanted to monitor our own hearts. And monitor our words. Lastly, a tender spouse knows how to confront wisely and carefully. Now, I mentioned this five months ago. I told you I'd come back to the story, so here it is. While David has had his wife taken away from him, Miguel, for years, he has this encounter. He's hiding out in the wilderness for 400 men, and he's been protecting the home of a man named Naboth. And it's feast day, and in that culture, it's like Christmas, and you always provide food for your neighbors and friends. It was sort of part of the tradition. Well, David's men are starving, and he's been protecting this family. And so he comes, sends his servants, and says, Hey, we're starving to death. We've been protecting your property. Uh, we haven't taken anything. Could you just provide a meal for us because we're starving? The guy's like, Who is David that he thinks he can take what's mine? Naboth says. Tell him, not a chance. So servants come back, tell David. And David is a mighty warrior who took on a hundred Philistines. Remember the pile? And David is furious. How dare this man be so ungrateful to me, so disrespect me, so unappreciate how I protected his soldiers and his men and his shepherds. Everyone grab your sword. We're killing him now. In fact, he turns to his man and says, look, in vain I have protected this man's stuff. In vain. You know what? May God bless me today if I don't kill him and everybody in his household. He's about to commit mass murder in a moment of anger. He grabs his sword and he is marching his way. This isn't like war where he's fighting another battle. This isn't the ethics of war. He's about to commit homicide. On his way, this genius woman named Abigail, who knows how to confront carefully and wisely, made some food. She runs and meets him halfway. She doesn't, he doesn't know her at all. And look at the way she speaks. Oh, Lord, on me. It's on me. I, I should have seen this coming. She knows how to take responsibility for her part. Look at how she speaks. Please, please, please. She talks respectfully to him. Please listen. We, we just, just, just for a second, could you just listen to what I'm speaking in your ears? I just want to share something. Now, she's ultimately going to confront him that what he's doing is totally dead wrong. But she does it in such a genius way that she communicates confrontation and rebuke with the language of respect. She says, listen, I know that God is going to one day make you king. Oh, she's heard. And God is going to one day do for you according to all the good he has spoken to you. She builds him up when she had a good right to tear him down. He was about to kill off her whole family. She says, I know God's going to make you king. I, I tell you, when you get that day in the future, when you're king, 
you don't want this to be a moment of grief for you. When you look back and say, I got really ticked off one time. I felt justified one time. And I was so offended one time that I went and killed off this guy named Naboth and his whole family. She says, so because I know that God has great things in store for you, don't blow it in this moment. And David is so able to hear because of the language choices she used. She confronted him so carefully and wisely. He's like, well, I am going to be king. And yeah, I don't want to be known as a king who killed people in innocent blood. He thanks her. Stops the men. Doesn't kill Naboth and his family. Says, wow. I need someone in my life who can speak truth to me in a way I can hear it. Who can bring the best out of me. And one of the roles in parenting, in marriage, in a department is do you have people in your life who can challenge you in a way you can hear it? Part of that's you learning not to be so defensive and so much stonewalling and so much attacking. But part of it too is if you're the communicator, how do I say this in a way that can best be heard? It's two-way. And David does exactly that. He doesn't kill Naboth. He does die pretty uh, soon later from natural causes. I think he's a heart attack, if I remember. And David's without a wife because his father-in-law married his wife off. So guess who David marries next? The woman who could carefully and wisely confront him and bring the best out of him. And Abigail becomes his wife. Because as a tender spouse, she knew how to carefully but wisely confront and bring the best out of her spouse. I have a mentor, a friend of mine, who I saw jogging one time down at a uh, uh, golf course area down in Georgia near where I used to live. And he shared a story about a time his wife had challenged him. Business was booming for him. He was so busy. This project was going well. No matter what he touched, turned to gold. Speaking projects, book projects, just incredible opportunity. And because of all that opportunity and busyness, it was sort of like their marriage was moving toward indifference. Not because of bad things, just because, wow, there's so much other stuff. We know the marriage is set. It got a little bit of the leftover time. He said, I got this letter from my wife. It's always bad when you get a letter from your wife. You're hoping it's a nice one. This was, he said, a challenging one. He said, she said, I've, I've been talking for the last six months with you. I really want you to read this. So John sat down and he read this letter. It started like this. When we are at our best, we listen to each other and we prioritize each other. When we are at our best, we find ways to make time for each other about what's going on. And our marriage has been characterized by exactly that. I have so appreciated the way you prioritize me and the kids. And when we are at our best, we work past our own defensiveness and we're open to the other person's feedback. And I've seen so many examples of that in our marriage. And she went on for about two pages. And she said, you know, recently I don't feel like we're at our best. And I want to get back to that. Recently I feel like instead of being at our best, there's been a whole lot of things that are taking your time besides us. When we're at our best, when somebody brings up a, a, a critique of one another or concerns one another, we at least take the time to consider it and to see if it might be true. And he said as he read that letter, he started off encouraged. Then he got defensive. But it was written so wisely that he said I couldn't not take into consideration and I realized I've gotten off track not because of bad things because of good things the indifference and passivity in our marriage has come because of all the other good things and yet it was starting to affect us and that letter and a wife that so wisely could confront me was the secret 
to me becoming the best version of myself. But all of that really comes back to pride. That shift I talked about. Have you allowed a shift to occur between who am I, a humble sense of life, and don't you know who I am? I'm important. I've gotten awards. I've made a lot of money. I've got a title. Have you allowed that to ruminate in your attitude toward the company you work for, the people you work with? Is there a lot more of who am I coming out of you? Or is a whole lot more of don't you know who I am coming out of you? Which of those four things do you need to most work on to keep the wheel of marriage and the wheel of relationship from going in a bad direction? Which of those four? Do you need to pick up the sword of humility and begin to wield humility and stop taking each other for granted? Maybe that's the one you need to work on today. Maybe you're like, no, no. But I'm not fighting for my spouse anymore. There's so much apathy and passivity that I've allowed in. I'm not fighting for my spouse. I used to drive halfway across town to get the french fry she wanted. Now I'm like, hey, can you get up and give me some water? Hey, don't you have legs? Oh, yeah, something's happened, right? Fight for your spouse as much as with. Are you monitoring your own heart? The words coming out of your own mouth? Or have you allowed contempt and stonewalling and avoidance and critique to begin to take over? Build a home in your house. And maybe you're good at speaking the truth. It just doesn't go over real well at work or at home. Are you willing to be open to God's wisdom about confronting carefully and wisely in a way that brings the best out of people? We have baptisms all the time around Horizon. We've had some recently. And I love this next clip I want to show you because it's a couple, years into marriage, are doing exactly what I've talked about. We're going to continue to commit to one another, forgive one another, pursue one another, prioritize one another, even in the midst of difficulty. Let's watch. A year and a half ago, I was on a just a bad path. And my marriage was in jeopardy. Um, I, I would venture to say my life was in jeopardy. And due to a very serious realignment, of everything, but most importantly, my faith, um, I, I'm at a much better place now. And I was able to realign, uh, to put Christ in the middle. And it saved my marriage, and it saved my professional and personal lives. And these guys, in addition to many, many others, were by my side. And they never wavered, and they never turned their back. They never judged. And I knew that with these guys, but more importantly with Christ, I can get through anything. I've not started to mention that our, uh, our marriage is really hanging in the balance. And because of just, just sin and some selfish choices, it was in jeopardy and I uh, through just some different circumstances we decided that it would be best to just take some time apart and through that every um, I didn't, we didn't know what the end would hold and uh, although we were, were separated every night I, I prayed and I said I, it didn't matter if it was 
two, three, four in the morning after I finished our project that I'm notorious for. But I chose to kneel down and just put this before the Lord at the foot of the cross because I didn't know what the outcome would be, but I was trusting in him that he would use this to his glory and this would be a part of our story and prayed that he would continue to soften Matt's heart and draw him to him like the Bible verse Ezekiel 36, 26 says that he would give him a new heart and, and soften his heart stone. I also knew that the Lord's ways are higher than my ways and I was just trusting in that and through that process I would say the story that we've got to share is related to repentance and forgiveness and redemption and that's really the story of the Lord where we can come and ask for forgiveness I'm so thankful that Christ is now the center of our marriage and that is something that we both are aligned on so even though we know it won't be easy moving forward always the ups and downs but we have that foundation that won't waver and through that we've been restored You know, we don't get to tell a lot of stories around here that get into that level of detail because we so honor confidentiality. But every week I get to hear stories of real change that happens. If you're in any kind of relationship, you're going to run out of patience, I promise you. You're going to run out of compassion. You're going to run out of fortitude. You're going to run out of love and joy. But God is the ultimate groom. He's the only perfect spouse. And he has reservoirs of joy. And he is so committed to you no matter what you've done that when you feel the love of how he's loved you when you were unlovable, when he respects you when you don't deserve the respect he gives you, when he pursues you and gives you attention when you don't deserve it, it's out of that love, the reservoir of his resources. He says, I want to make a covenant with you, a commitment with you. I want to vow to be with you in sickness and in health. And when you realize God who, who could do whatever he wants whenever he wants vows to you, to be with you long term. It's out of that love and commitment from him. That you're able to go and extend that to someone who's hurt you. Someone that you've been with. And you can say to that person. We didn't just make a vow 10 years ago. 40 years ago. We're making our vows again today. You are the one for me. Because God said I'm the one for him. You know, it's amazing. The Bible describes a God who's a groom, who's a spouse, who wants to commit to us, who wants to sing songs over us, he says. He wants to believe in us and trust in us and do life with us. So I want to end in prayer tonight, and whether that's where your marriage is and we want to rejoice for those who rejoice, or that's where you want your marriage to be again, or some other relationship in your life you want to be again, let's just pray and ask God for his help. You can bow your heads with me and just pray in whatever way you want. You can follow along if you like and just say, God, thank you for the season I'm in. Keep filling me up with your forgiveness and your hope. Or maybe you want to say, God, I don't like the season I'm in. God, I realize I need to take ownership of some things that I've been doing or not doing. God, forgive me for my selfishness. And teach me how to love again. Teach me how to be wise again. Teach me how to uproot the selfishness within me. Forgive me, restore me, and fill me up. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, thank you for being here today. We're going to finish one more week of the Really Wed game next weekend. We have a special guest, Kimberly Miller, a psychologist, who's going to talk about studying your inner soul so that your in-laws can't push your buttons because you're in control of how you react. We'll see you next week for that interview. Thanks so much.